from HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You're listening to HerbMentor Radio and HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My, desk, my guest today is Seven Song. Seven Song is an herbalist, naturalist, and director of the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine in Ithaca, New York. He is known throughout the herbal community as someone who's passionate about meeting new plants, someone who loves to help people wherever he travels, and as the herbal first aid guy. Uh, Seven Song is a herbal practitioner at the Director of Holistic Medicine at the Ithaca Free Clinic, and his website is sevensong, that's the number seven, S-O-N-G, dot com. So Seven Song, I'm really thankful that you're spending some time with us today. Uh, <laughs> me too, John. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I, it was a bit of a, a challenge for me to, to write your intro there since I, I found that you, you kind of transcend introductions. You know, there's, you seem to be many things to many people. So mm-hmm. I'm going to keep it. So I thought I'd just keep it basic. Um, so, you know, the reason why I, I love doing these uh, interviews is not so much, you know, just to learn herbal tips and all. But, um, you know, for, to, but really to connect with herbalists, to learn about their approach, their stories, how they connect with plants, and how they help people with plants. So I'm just going to meander down the uh, forest path here, if you will, with some uh, various questions. So uh, um, I want to start with something that I know you're very passionate about when we were talking a few weeks ago, and that's your work at the Ithaca Free Clinic. Because, um, you know, everyone listening is going to wish they had one in their own towns probably, and, and maybe someone listening will be inspired to start one. So um, what what is the clinic, and and you mind talking about your role there? No, not at all, John. Um, it, it, it seems a simple question, of course, right. um, but it's more complex. The, so the Ithaca Free Clinic is an outgrowth of another group called the Ithaca Health Alliance. Uh-huh. And so the, in the free clinic part of it, we treat people, which I love doing. And But another part of it is speaking to keeping community services oriented towards the community, mm-hmm. having local people being a part of the community. So there's a whole other aspect to the Ithaca Free Clinic and its parent organization as far as trying to alter the way people view uh, medical care and insurance companies uh, in our society. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, so, and Go ahead. So the Ithaca Free Clinic, um, we're a combination. Some people say we're an integrative clinic. My goal, our goal, is often is someday be truly integrative. But what we are now is at least a mixed modality clinic. So there are doctors there. So every time that we're open, we're open right now on Mondays and Thursdays for four hours each day. So we're open a total of eight hours a week to see people. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll probably see about 24 people for everybody per day that we're open. The doctor sees the lion's share of the folks. Most people come there to see a doctor. He or she uh, we'll have the least amount of time, of course, just because it's four hours and they might see 18 people. We also have chiropractors there some days, acupuncturists, a nutritionist, and then myself as a Western clinical herbalist. Now, I see people for about 45 minutes and then it takes about 15 to 20 minutes to write up their case notes so that all of us can see what each other is doing. 
uh, when working with somebody. Uh, at this point, it is, it's definitely happening that some people will come to see one of us and then go to see another. Mo- more commonly, they'll come to see a doctor, hear about th- that we have an acupuncturist or an herbalist, and then come to see one of us. So, uh, you know, our goal is very simple. It's just to treat people and, to, you know, to help lay the burden that uh, exists in our society without having basic coverage for lots of folks. But one of the parts of the, our doctors try to just see people who don't have any insurance at all or very underinsured. The holistic practitioners, that would be myself, acupuncturists, et cetera, um, will see anybody since there's no insurance that covers herbal medicine or acupuncture in general. And so we don't ask about, you know, what coverage they have. If they have money, they're welcome to donate it. None of us take money for our services. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're we're a free clinic, and we don't have um, 501c3 nonprofit status. Mm-hmm. So we're happy to take donations whenever people want to offer them. But it, it's not – there's no – there's I don't think anybody ever even mentions it. It's just the kind of thing after I see somebody, they might say, you know, I do have some money, and I'd like to pay. And then we'll go, okay, here's the person to give the money to. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, so, go ahead. Uh, and then just a little bit more. And so, as far as the herbal medicines, most of them mm-hmm. are donated as well. Mm-hmm. And so, having myself having connections in the larger herbal community, I'll just hit up as many organizations often to see if they can donate uh, tinctures or teas, or raw herbs or salves. I also make a lot of my own medicines, and I contribute them. And sometimes there's actually some reimbursement for them as well. Oh wow! Okay. So, so do you take um, so anyone who's listening to this who had um, medicines that they make, could they donate them to the clinic? Yes, they could. Um, I mean, I would if, honestly. A lot of herbalists make their own medicines, mm-hmm. and I would want to know them just to make sure. So, if they're a larger company, it's probably pretty safe that they have the right plant and right. do it in a good manner. Good point. <laughs> uh, for, for I mean, I'm also a botanist, and so I just have seen people gather the wrong plant and you know, at least the wrong species sometimes. And so I, I don't want to be discouraging, but I do want to be honest and say, you know, I when I know the person, I can just ask them a few questions and just make sure that the plant that I'm giving the patient is the correct plant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so... So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot, a lot of people, let's, you know, listening to this or people that I work with, I, 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 I seem to meet them, a lot of folks in, in the beginning of their learning journey with plants, you know, like, like, hey, I'm, I want to learn to make some home remedies. I want to learn some things. Um, but there's, you know, there's a big, there's a big, uh, you know, gap between Starting to harvest some of your own plants and make some things in your kitchen to nourish and feed your and and to treat your family, and you know being a an herbalist in in a, in a clinic. Um, so, what's the you know I'm curious about your story um, on how you 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 did that where you you know obviously you you started learning at some point and and now you're doing what you're doing. Um, how did that, you know, how did that kind of fall into place for you? Because uh, people's stories really help people uh, kind of see what's possible for themselves. Well, I started studying herbs in, in 1981, herbal medicine. I've always been naturalistically, it was nice to hear when you uh, gave the uh, interview or uh, whatever, the intro to me, uh, and you said herbalist and naturalist because that doesn't, People don't say that much. I've never gone to any formal schooling, but the reality is, is when I'm out looking at plants, 
I'm uh, pretty happy if I can see some new salamanders. I'm watching the birds in the sky. I mean, I'm just somebody who's interested in the natural world in general. And also, I mean, I study economics and politics in a very light, like I have a subscription to the economist kind of way. Right. So, which is not quite, I mean, I'm not sure that's the natural world or not. <laughs> so, um, let's see. So, I started studying it, and I just took it pretty intensely. One of the things that makes it easier for me to work in this clinic is that I tend to study and I teach physiology, pathophysiology, anatomy, and I'm interested in a lot of modern medical systems, So, or not systems, but the drugs, the pharmacokinetics. And so when, when I talk to the doctors, they're often thinking that herbalists are maybe well-intentioned but kind of light on their studies. And so just, you know, when they say something, well, how do you know this does this? And I go, well, how do you know this does this? I mean, not as in, just antagonistically, but it's just a reality that they still question why, you know, the SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, even their major effects, so they work. And so for me, it's just, even if I don't say something out loud, like, I always question things. And so... For me, when the doctors talk to me and they ask me questions, uh, instead of being defensive about herbs and saying, oh, they just work because they've been used for thousands of years, I, I don't buy that. I don't buy that just because something has withstood the test of time that it's effective. War has withstood the test of time. Meanness is with So many things have been around a long time, and I don't know if they're to the betterment. Perhaps they are. So, But for me... Um, you know, they'll ask me a question, and I'll just sit there and go, well, I'm not really sure how this works, but this is these are the physiological systems that we see it work in, or it's an inflammatory, an anti-inflammatory, and it looks like it works more in a prostaglandin inhibiting kind of way. And so part of that is that dialogue. I mean, I not every herbalist needs to speak this language, but it is a language that I speak. It's not, I don't study it for them. I study it for me, and so that allows me in the door um, but the other thing is I've just been reliable. Ever, I've, mm-hmm. I started working with the free clinic about a year before the doors opened, went to a lot of meetings. So the other part of it is, I'm, and this is what I'd really recommend to anybody interested, is be part of the you know, initial force. Be, if you're a part of the system as it's getting set up, you have so much more say than just saying, oh, there's a free clinic, I'd like to join. And maybe it's still good, right? It's better than nothing. But if you're a part of the whole initiation process of the clinic, then you're helping guide it. And people, just, you know, all the people around me, most of them who work in our local hospital, just see that, you know, I have a stake in it. I'm interested in a much bigger way than just, you know, uh, you know, purporting herbal medicine, uh, you know, as a viable medical uh, option. I mean, I believe that, but I also just think we all have to work together to really just serve our community, and it's how do we serve our community, not how do I just give herbs. Does that answer any of it? Yes, that totally does. So it's it's kind of that approach. It's just like you know, the, it's it's your it's your it's you're always questioning. It's you're following your passion and your leads of the things that you want to know. Um, in that side of things, as far as learning, but at the same time, it's that passion to help your community and having the, that raw material. It seems like will lead you in a direction. It, it, yes, uh, initially. Um, so herbalists, we're the only non-licensed people working in the free clinic are herbalists. So just to be incredibly clear, I am just against herbalists getting licensing. I just feel like it'll breed mediocrity, like it does to everything else. Mm-hmm. And once you go for licensing, you always test. And then, it's, you know, if you know your Ayurveda, then the pit is always win because the people who test 
of the best. They're the people who will always be part of it. Whereas, you know, maybe you're, you know, you are people that are a little more spontaneous and not as good memorization. They just might fall out of the cracks there. And I, I just want lots of people to practice. Um, but to the doctors and the nurse practitioners and other people when we were starting it, you know, they were like, well, how do we validate that you know something? And I said, well, there's a couple of ways you can ask us. There's a few herbalists at the time. You can ask us questions, mm-hmm. which they did. And then we just gave ourselves um, a certain amount of period. It was three months for anybody to evaluate it. Of course, nobody really had good evaluation tools because they're not herbalists. But right. I think what they were just looking for is that no, we didn't do anything incredibly silly. But none of us, all of us are trained better than that who work in the clinic. Right now, I'm the only Western clinical herbalist there. Um, so... Okay. I think I'm finished with that thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you another thing. I think the first thing I learned about you. I think when I took a class with you years ago, which which struck me as really cool, is that you run through. Well, your school kind of does it as a as a regular as a part of its training, like your your six month or your your apprenticeship program. I saw um, actually about the working uh, first aid at the Rainbow Gatherings. And and these are this is a just so folks don't know it's a, it's a week long gathering happens every July um, at a different place right um, yeah it's a huge gathering it's kind of uh, left over from the heydays of hippiness right. in seventy two which is going and about between eight and fifteen thousand people are there at any one time and it's a little bit deep in the woods meaning that even if people want immediate medical care we still would have to carry them out to an ambulance which means that you know those people there are still going to work it's an extraordinary experience there i mean the rainbow gathering itself is very mixed for lots of reasons that are a whole other discussion right but we all go there and we just see the kinds of mishaps that happen to large groups of people when they're gathered deep in the woods so yes. by large groups it's you know ten thousand people and so there's all kinds of food poisonings and water poisonings and people getting poked in the eye by sticks walking around at night and diarrhea of assorted types, all kinds of anxiety and stress and depression and constipation and diarrhea. And so it's phenomenal. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of made for that kind of work. I, I, my specialty, I mean, I just, is that I love to work. I like to work with people in first aid circumstances. It's also really nice for a critical thinking mind because in chronic healthcare, somebody has really bad rashes and you're treating them, and they're tired all the time. So you start giving them herbs, and over the course of many months, they often they might get better. Right? Mm-hmm. They can get a lot better. But it's always the question of, did my herbs work? On the other hand, somebody falls down, twists their body in a weird shape, and you help them with herbs, and you help reduce the pain. You can see it immediately. If they start to go, you know, they get stung by something that's just really painful, and you figure out how to take the stinger out if that's what's in them and how to relieve the pain locally, it's, mm-hmm. that kind of immediacy is fun for me. Right, right. I, I understand. That that's uh so yeah because you know I was thinking that's uh what a great way to learn just to to put yourself in the trenches like that you know that's one of those really appealing things with your school I was like oh if I lived on the east coast <laughs> you know, that would be like you know putting yourself and learning learning by just throwing yourself in the fire you know putting yourself in the woods with ten thousand people <laughs> and learn. Uh, a bigger fire is a couple of years ago I don't think I'll ever I don't think I'll ever do this with a class again but we went to the Republican National Convention when it was in New York City wow I live about five and five hours north of New York City. And uh, so we, uh, you know, all the students that wanted to go, I think about 14 out of about 18 that year came. And that was even trickier because, you know, it, it's an urban setting with, you know, the police on guard and 
you know, a lot of, you know, all the crazy things that happen when a lot of protesters get together. And so that, but that's something that I like to do personally is just go to what's called street protests or street medicine um, and helping out whenever there's groups of people gathering in order to make their point heard. Personally, I'll help anybody. I, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I have my opinions on what I'd like to see happen in the world. But as far as who I treat, I treat anybody. I remember going to the inauguration, there was a street protest for George Bush the first time, uh, the second George Bush. And this woman wearing mink, and I don't really know if it was fake fur or not, but she started having an asthma attack. And, uh, you know, so I went up to her and I'm kind of surprised she let me treat her, but I gave her some nobility, which just helped her asthma pretty much immediately. And I was like, all right, you know, but I would have treated, I'd treat anybody. Wow. <laughs> so that's interesting stories too. I mean that that's that's amazing. You know, just get going anywhere and and uh, and um, is there any any stories that kind of really really stand out? Like uh, any any you know in, in situations like that that you can think of? No, there's some herbs that are just quick acting that I tend to bring. Like lobelia can really help asthma a lot, especially anxiety or stress induced asthma, which is common in situations where you have protests or even, you know, things go wrong for people. And one of the things that happens just because of how their body reacts is, you know, their bronchi start to close a bit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've lots of times where I've seen, I've given small amounts of lobelia or another, usually lobelia and just, you know, the people are just amazed that they start to breathe better, quicker. Um, but I think there's just lots of them where people are just feeling really terrible, and then there are some herbs that are just quite potent in small doses where that you can really alleviate symptoms, and the people are like, I can't believe the herbs did that. And you know, I'm thinking the same thing, really, every time in 25 <laughs> years. And I definitely still think, I'm like, whoa, I, I look at them breathing again. Wow. So, and, you know, treating wounds and helping, you know, like I've seen some really nasty dog bites that were just getting, that were pretty infected, just a couple of, applications you know when i say just a couple applications i mean with knowledge with it's not we have to be you have to have integrity here so it's not like you could just give herbs and that it's over with mm -hmm. so if somebody has a bad dog bite it's getting infected one has to know the signs of when do i need to bring them for more you know intensive treatment when do they need conventional medicine um but that said you know a lot of time i mean there's just a, a very long history of herbs with wounds and injuries because human beings have had them ever since we've looked a little bit like the way we have and before that. Mm -hmm. so. Um, so you, you like, of course people, can they can learn about herbs and all. Um, what other things for people starting out interested in first aid, like should folks like think about going to the Red Cross, taking a first aid class or a CPR class, you know, getting started there too? Is that yeah, it always helps. I mean, there's two parts to herbal medicine. Mm -hmm. And the first part, which is uh, some people get pretty good, which is understanding plants. So for me, to be a good herbalist, you have to be able to like, properly identify plants. That means knowing some basic botany skills and being able to use a floral key to identify mm -hmm. it. Then figure out getting, you know, ethically how to gather that plant so you don't hurt the population of plants nearby, how to prepare it well into medicine, whatever form you use. And then with time, understanding the properties. And for me, the properties of herbs are the categories often. So is it more of an anti-inflammatory? Is it more of an antihistamine-like herb? Is it more of a nervine sedative? You know, so for me, there's like thinking about categories because it frees you up. So there's that part of it. Mm -hmm. Then the other part that I think that herbalists can often uh, benefit a lot is diagnosis and the patient part. And for me, there's two aspects there. So 
you're asking, is it good to go to Red Cross? It's good to go to any class where people teach you basic diagnostics so you know when things are over your head. And that's what everybody, I mean, who practices medicine needs to know. At one point, things are out of control, and you have to go somewhere else if that's at all possible. It's not always possible. I mean, sometimes you do first aid, sometimes you're in the street, and you're the only one, and then you got to do whatever you can. At least you have to stabilize until you can get help. Mm-hmm. So I would say Red Cross is useful. I would say any kind of first responder course mm-hmm. is very useful. And under, you know, just hanging out with doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses, and learning basic diagnosis. And just, you know, what they, what they're seeing when they make these calls. It's not that herbalists should be all diagnosing, but we should understand what these diagnoses means. Um, it's helpful to know a little bit about how drugs, other drugs, conventional drugs, as opposed to herbal drugs, uh, work in people's bodies. So there's just, you know, it's endless. But it's really helpful to know the, the person side. And so for me, there's, it's, uh, double option is two ways of looking at it. So one of them is pathophysiology. Mm-hmm. So if somebody has pneumonia and it's viral pneumonia, having a little bit of a sense of how a virus replicates in lungs and the kind of downstream effect you would see, and then also having a constitutional overlay. And a constitutional overlay would say, okay, if they just have pneumonia once, it's really just a matter of killing the virus and restoring their health. But if they get pneumonia every winter, it could be that you know something's wrong with their immune system. It's under-functioning. Right. And so as opposed to just giving them immune herbs, you know, what kind of body type? So I tend to use Ayurveda and look at Vata and Pitta and Kapha body types. Mm-hmm. But for me, there's, so it's, here's the pathophysiological thing. They have a viral pneumonia. Now, the other part is they get this often. How do we shore up their body? What herbs just make them stronger? And that's where modern medicine usually has its biggest drawbacks. There's a lot of great things about modern medicine. One of the things that I think the doctors appreciate from me at the free clinic um, is that I'm, I'm just not anti-modern medicine. I like modern medicine. The arrogance that's often accompanying it, the insurance schemes, which are horrible in this country, those things are deficits. Often the doctors are just really well-meaning people um, with their sets of skills. But what modern medicine rarely does is really help nurture uh, people, and that's where herbal medicine, we, we also can help kill microorganisms. But there's a whole part of what we do that is just based on making the person stronger to resist getting sick. So something like chronic fatigue syndromes are just poorly treated with modern medicines unless there's a really, there's a vector that you can kill. Uh, For us, we just think, what's going on? What part of the nervous system is affected or the immune system or is it adrenal related? And then thinking, how do we shore this up? And I think that's where herbal medicine really shines. Oh, great. Um, You know, I'm glad you started going into that a bit about the, the categories because um, I wanted to mention first that on your website at sevenson.com you have the um, uh, handout section. So what I'm referring to right here for those who can kind of follow along at home while we're talking is uh, there's a particular one that I that I downloaded, printed out, uh, called Herbs for First Aid, Trauma and Wound Care. Um, because first aid is so huge. <laughs> it's, you could, as you do, you teach entire courses, <laughs> intensive courses on it. Um, but something that I, uh, a basic thing that we can, I think we can take away from this simple call, um, that was powerful is what you started to get into a second ago was that looking into, looking at things as in categories, um, like, for example, something that was really 
a, a helpful thing when one category uh, might be astringents, which uh, contracts tissue and reduces discharges. And something that you said is like, well, what you're and when you, when you're looking for an astringent, uh, you know, you can use any woody plant because they all have tannins. You don't have to think like, oh, I don't have this plant, I can't get the action that I'm looking for. So um, that was that was that was really powerful. I think it's just a good way is to, is when we free ourselves from just thinking herb does this and start thinking categorically. So astringents or antispasmodics, things that help us smooth muscle muscles or skeletal muscle relaxants. So you're thinking, okay, this person has GI spasms. They just ate something that's disagreeing and they're vomiting and a diarrhea mm-hmm. and let's and the vomiting first I mean you need anti nauseans to get any herbs in them. Mm-hmm. And then you think, okay, you know, I can try to clear and kill whatever in there, but what kind of muscle is in the you know, it's the GI and you're like, okay, it's smooth muscle. So, you know, then you know, antispasmodics are a whole group and then there's many of them and some of them you can find here and there. So but I do want to say that while most woody plants have astringents, the mm-hmm. trick is that some woody plants have other constituents that you don't want in the person. And so the trick is with right. an astringent like oak. Right. Like the oak trees don't have many resins. They don't have alkaloids. They don't have any other ingredient to really interfere. So, you know, when you're giving it to them, the majority of the effect will be the astringent effect. Okay. So um, then, and then what I, I was wondering if we could, if we could do here, uh, kind of looking at your your handout, is uh, you have uh, on here uh, talking about the categories and looking at the uh, wound protocol because that's something you know everyone will trip or have kids a trip and get a scrape or a bump or a bruise or maybe they're going to get something worse. So um, you using using that uh, protocol that you have. So could we um, maybe make up a little uh, you know, case study, if you will, about how we would think in as far as these categories? Um, like, you know, such as uh, an, using an anti-inflammatory or an antiseptic or, or that sort of thing. And then maybe a couple examples as we're going, you know? Would that, is that, sure. does that well, sound good? Well, the first thing to say, John, is that, it, I mean, all these are free on my website. Right. I, the only thing my website, I guess, sells is the herb school, but mm-hmm. you can just avoid that and just uh, search around anywhere on there. Mm-hmm. So if if one's going to do this, mm-hmm. there are the, the same basic considerations. So I'll, I won't go into them in detail, and I'll just say where you can find them on the, on the handout. Exactly. But the same basic considerations are important, and for me, it's just easy to get, if somebody has blood leaking from them, they have any kind of wound, you just shouldn't be touching their open wound. And so, you know, every first aid kit, it, there's no difference between a standard conventional Red Cross first aid kit and herbal first aid kit. The thing that you need are disposable gloves so that you don't contract any disease, nor do you give any disease if you're bleeding and working with somebody. Mm-hmm. So everybody who's listening to this, Make sure that you start off by reading the beginning that says practical and safety considerations, or just learn from the Red Cross. Learn to how to treat people without inflicting more harm or hurting yourself, which doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, do you have an example in mind? Um, let's see. I, I'm, I'm thinking. Uh, uh, let's see. My, um, 
you know, so something that something where someone's getting a wound, um, it's it's inflamed, it's 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 bleeding. Um, how about a how about a dog bite? A dog bite, <laughs> sure. There you go. Does that work? Yeah, that works great. Okay. So the reason that a dog bite is a useful um, illustration is that so the first thing that happens is that when many people get bit by dogs, one of the first things they need is a trauma aid. Getting bit by dog, most people don't get bit by dogs regularly, and one of the things that happens when they get bit is that whatever emotion that they run to when things get bad is often very apparent. So some people get really angry, some people break down and cry, some people get morose. So even as, as you're starting to treat them, you're also just treating the person's emotional impact from getting bit by a dog. I mean, there's just a wide range. And so there's a bunch of herbs that I would call, say, are trauma aids. And by trauma aids, they just alter uh, the person's, you know, they're not really nervines. They're not really trying to sedate the person. They're just herbs that seem to help ground people. And you have things like calamus and anemone um, that they just help people be a little more focused. You don't want to be too focused, right? Because, you know, there's pain involved. You know, somebody got bit hard on the hand. I mean, you know, you don't need them to be entirely grounded. You just need them, though, to be kind of present with you as you work with them. So that, that's part of the first thing. And as I say this, I, one of the things that any person who works in any branch of medicine is important to learn is just, uh, you know, bedside manner or good counseling skills. It's one. It's a lot of herbalists just jump from that topic. And any, when you practice with people, mm-hmm. how you approach people, learning to read people and learning to make them feel better by just watching their body language, listening to their voice, and offering yourself is important. So you know, because if, if I'm sitting there and oh, I'm all nervous and crazy, and I'm just saying, oh yeah, that dog, that's just going to make the situation worse. So it's just all these things, these counseling skills are just vital. And you see it when you practice, you see it. If you if you know how to relate to people in a certain manner for the individual, and also, of course, how your own personality. I use humor a lot because it's just, it, it flows out of me pretty easy. So that's a big part. So before, you know, as you're learning medicine, counseling skills often called bedside manner. Mm-hmm. So then um, what I'll do is I'll give a very small amount of one of the more grounding herbs if the person wants that, just if, if that needs to be addressed. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, especially if they got bit by their own dog, then sometimes it's just like annoyed at their dog for biting them. Uh, so the next thing you want to do is you might want to either treat pain and then start working on the wound. So with a dog bite, they tend to get infected. I, I don't know the number, 50%. I, you see it often. And with a dog bite, it's just no, it's important to understand what happens. Often people get bit. They don't do anything, and it's about a day to a day and a half later, and that's when the infection starts. So you want to start treating immediately, even though the person's hand, all it has is some holes in it. But, you know, you have to think about what are the many things that dogs eat, right? Those are in their teeth and their gums. So when you get bit, you're getting, you know, that dog happened to be chomping on some tasty feces that day. You just got that in your skin as well. So, um, So sometimes it's treating the pain, and for anybody who does first aid, it's really important to know about 10 different pain remedies because they work a little bit different. Like wild lettuce is more just kind of stops pain without affecting the emotions as much. Skullcap is a good skeletal muscle relaxant, also reduces pain and often makes people feel a little calmer. Valerian is a better one if you, in larger doses to put people to sleep. So there's just, there's lots of different remedies associated with the nervous system and knowing the differences is very helpful. So that might be something I would start with. 
And then I'm going to pretty much immediately want to get their hand, let's say they were bit on the hand. That might be the thing are the most common place that people get bit in the feet, mm-hmm. sometimes on their side. Um, get I got, that I got into bit some, in my butt when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so we would have had some fun with you there. We would have, <laughs> oh, they have sharp teeth. So then we'd have to make a sit bath to, to soak your butt in. <laughs> Sorry, um, So the, the next thing is, it's a funny memory, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Um, it's evoking something here, John. Um, so uh, what you want to do is you want to clean it out. And so one of the easiest ways to clean it is just make a really hot tea, not, not hot enough to burn their skin. That's just bad for them. And just if you have a really hot tea, not, not hot enough to burn their skin, that's just bad for them. And just if you have yarrow, and the beauty of yarrow is it just grows all over the United States. I mean, it's in the north, it's in the south, it's not everywhere, it's not in the deserts, but it does grow in a lot of different environments. So once you learn to recognize yarrow, you make a really strong tea and you just start soaking uh, the person's body in whatever part uh, in that. Or it could actually be another dog, the same thing. I mean, yarrow is just, see, and yarrow is an anti-inflammatory and an anti-infective because when you get bit, you have two aspects. You have infection and inflammation. The inflammation is important. You don't want to, you don't want to stifle it entirely, but a little bit just helps reduce pain. And then also having them drink some of the yarrow and soak that. And then after you're finished with soaking it for however long you do it, then activated charcoal, uh, which is a more processed form of charcoal and have, you know, start making poultices and applying that topically to pull out any residue of any toxin, any bacteria really, because dogs are not toxic, um, on their skin. And so, and then you start giving them strong medicines to just kill any infection. So you might go with OSHA or echinacea. Echinacea is particularly important for bites and wounds because echinacea is an innate immune stimulant. Mm-hmm. And you know, whenever you have injury, the first aspect of your body's immune system is going to be your innate immunity and the neutrophils cleaning stuff up and the inflammatory chemicals getting released. And so uh, that's a good one uh, to work with. And then you wrap it up and you check them daily. And if it gets worse, you start soaking it more often. You might want to increase the internal use of the anti-infectives, maybe anti-inflammatories, maybe sedatives if the pain's real bad. I think that's a, a pretty rational way to go. Okay, and um, you said you said uh, the activated charcoal is was something that uh, is that what you said like one of the one of the you know main things you wouldn't have without in your kit or, <laughs> or something like that and like yeah it's uh, it's funny last night uh, yesterday was our last day of classes here for the year um, and you know the question is always what do I use when I travel and because I always travel heavy because I always have botany books wherever I want to go I want another plant right. but actually my medicine kit's pretty small. Uh, so if I'm going to some other country and I have as light a backpack as I can with the botany books and botany tools, um, I always have propolis and activated charcoal. And the activated charcoal is internal or external use wherever I think I need to draw something out. That's what activated charcoal does. And then propolis to just seal up any wounds and have an antimicrobial wound seal. Uh, so, yes, so those, those are the two things I travel with all the time. Okay. Um, and, you know, something that was, uh, really inspirational at the talk that I saw was seeing your first aid, uh, kit. I think I posted on my blog, um, like just, I took a little photo of it, you know, said like one of the sections, I said, there's like three or four sections like this, you know, <laughs> put it up there, just showing people like an example of, of the, the ultimate, uh, herbal first aid kit. But, uh, but you have, um, 
I think a handout on there too of, of that you, people could download as well um, with with some some key things to to have in your first aid kit. Uh, it's unfortunately it's not the key things. It's a first aid checklist. First aid checklist. Oh, there is a key. There is a key one as well. Right. But there's a first aid checklist, but that probably has like 120 remedies that you might carry with you. And then I have something that's called, I think, the street medicine checklist or something like that. And that tends to be more of like the maybe there are 10 or 15 things that people uh, might want to bring with them. To have to have on have on their persons at all. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things. It depends where you are. You know, where I am, a lot of things I see are going to be food and water poisoning just from large groups. It's not that it's not particularly a hippie thing mm-hmm. at the Rainbow Gathering that so many people get sick. It's just when you have that many people, it just takes one person not washing their hands after pooping to start spreading uh, some kind of uh, infectious organism. Through there are a couple of people drinking water, people using unclean water. So it's just, I mean, large groups. It's just easy to have this spread. I mean, it happened in the Syracuse north of here, the county fair some years ago where E. coli was spread in the water. So it's, you know. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see here. Um, then um, is there any other um, things as far as um, first aid or anything that you you want, would want to uh, have people keep in mind? Because I know there's things on there that, um, you know, like in your kit, there's a lot of there's things in, in, in your checklist that, that aren't herbs and things like, you know, uh, that, that are really important practical things to have along, like you said before, gloves and, and things like that. And, and, and maybe there's some just um, some general things that, that people just kind of forget about, you know, when, when, when working on that. Uh, yeah, the first is a couple of pairs of disposable gloves, uh, any kind of respiratory mask. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking down people's throats, so you can actually wear a bandana. I tend to have a bandana with me to cover my own mouth because it goes both ways. You can cough in their mouth, they can cough in your mouth while you're looking in there. And just but a respiratory mask will work as well, just any kind of a mouth covering. And a flashlight is just very important because one of the most common times people hurt themselves is at night. And so if you don't have any kind of small, like just one of those mag lights or any kind of small flashlight, it could be very helpful also if you have to go run and find somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, alcohol pads are quite good. They're mm-hmm. very inexpensive. Um, let's see. You know, I always carry an epinephrine needle, what's called an EpiPen, mm-hmm. uh, in case somebody goes into shock. Uh, so I do have one of those. They're pretty expensive, but um, there's a point when anaphylaxis is happening where there's nothing else to do, but you hope that you, somebody has epinephrine on them. So that's something that's one of the few medical uh, devices I have with me all the time. Okay. Um, all right, great. And I think if there was a, just another little area I just wanted to check in with you about is um, like some, some other uh, great handouts I saw in there were like uh, you had the st- 12 steps for botanical identification and some information about learning about uh, plant families. Um that's something that um, often is a block for people when I see them starting to learn. And we do take it, say, for example, an herb mentor, like, you know, a, an herb of the month, and we plant it at a time, which is a very simple way of doing it. You start to use the plant, start to get introduced. But then there's that point where it's like you start going outside and wondering what this is and what that is. And... Um, and that can be uh, a wilderness awareness school, uh, anyway. <laughs> well, years there, we always call it the wall of green. You know, you're walking outside and it's just like, all I see is green. You know, before you start to actually kind of identify individuals, 
you know, uh, out there. Um, so when you're, when you're teaching, what, what is your uh, way of, of helping people start to break, you know, start to, um, start to see the plants as individuals and not as just one big wall of green, if you will. It's funny because I'm not really sure. It's not really that funny. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure how people identify plants without technical identification skills. So Mm -hmm. in a previous era, if we didn't travel, it was pretty easy. So you lived in some small town in France, and then your mom or your dad would show you the plants that grew around you. And so you didn't really need any technical skills because they can show you all the plants that were there. Now, that kind of aspect has been severed. And so now we're, you're probably going to travel around a few times in your life. And so when you get someplace, how do you know? So you move from New York to Iowa. And how do you know what the Iowa plants are? Uh, so there's two ways to answer the question. So how do I break down the wall of green and what do I re- how do I really think people need to learn to identify plants? And for me, the only way to really learn to identify plants is to spend the discipline and know-how and learn how to use what's called a technical key or a flora. You, you know, because if you use a simple book like uh, Newcomb's, and some people use Michael Moore's, the problem with that is that they don't list all the plants in an area. So if you're saying, oh, look, that looks like Arnica, oh, it matches the description. But if, what if it's one of the 15 plants not in that book? So using the Peterson Medicinal Plant Field Guide, mm-hmm. you have no idea. You just know that it's kind of like the one. See, when you have a technical flora, they tend to have almost all the plants, and you can say, okay, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one. Okay, this is probably the one that it is. So that's that's the technical aspect is knowing how to key plants out and how to – you just have to know how to count stamen and styles mm-hmm. and to look to see if it's a monocot or a dicot and all those basic parts. Um, how to break down the wall of green is you sit down with a group of people and you say, point out all the plants in front of us. So you sit in a circle, maybe, you know, ten people. You sit down and you go point out all the plants. And initially, people are like, uh, well, there's this one and this one. You go, how about what else just looks different? And what happens is people, once you start looking, you're like, oh, look, this has a different stem and this has a different leaf and these two grasses look differently, even if they don't know the grasses. So you just sit down and you just allow observational skills, you know, which for me is really the same uh, medically because when somebody sits down and starts to talk to me about their health, I'm observing them as well, and I'm trying to figure out the nuances of the quality of their voice, the quality of what they look like. I mean, it's all detective work in the end. So um, when people are like, oh, there's just too many plants, how do you know them all? Well, you don't have to know them all, but you just want to learn how to distinguish one from the other, and the best way is just sit down anywhere, different places, and just start saying, and start saying oh, this is different than this, and this is different than this, and you don't have to know what they are yet, but that, as you're calling it, the wall of creating, all of a sudden you start seeing individual members. For me, it's like that classic kind of weird thing that people say, you know, like all Caucasians look alike or something, you know. It's like when you start looking, you know, the, the differences become reasonably obvious. Exactly, exactly. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, is, um, it is something, too, because once you start to really use that art of questioning in yourself and looking closely, uh, you start to see all these subtle differences in things. And then, and then of course, and, and then there's – I find that um, – 
going through the plant family often is is helpful if I'm going from place to place. Like now I go back east. I mean, I, I first learned about some plants in the northeast, and then I moved quickly to the northwest, learned stuff here. Now I go back to where I grew up, and I'm like, oh, what's that, you know? <laughs> but at least I can also go, hey, I think that, that it's definitely a mint. <laughs> you know? well, that, that's, and that's, the, that's definitely one of the best ways to do it, John. I mean, it's once you know your plant families, it it just stops a lot of the confusion. And in North America, right? And no, let's not North America. Let's go to the United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only like maybe fifteen or twenty plant families, maybe twenty five that are very common. That's not that many families to memorize the basic characteristics. And it's do. I mean, I teach it every year. Some people just never really get that part. Well, I have to say, and they get frustrated and using the small magnifying lenses and all the specific terminology basically probably drives them away from herbal medicine forever. But um, for many others, at least they know what they don't know. It's that classic aspect, you know, where it's like maybe they're not great at plant identification, but they know that they have to do a little bit of legwork and eye work and brain work in order to identify uh, plants. So, you know, you need some basic tools, ruler. I mean, you know, 15 bucks will get you everything you need to identify a plant as far as just magnifying lenses, scissors, razor blades, rulers, and that kind of thing. Heck, you can go to a used bookstore or, or an Amazon used and get some local guides. Uh, yeah, if you live in, the, like for us, if you live in the Northeast, you would start with Newcombs. Yes, if you're is. where you're from in the Northwest, you would start with Pojar, yes. P-O-J-A-R. But then lots of areas in the United States have this basic books, and then you have to kick it up. In, in order to really know what plant you're looking at, but you know, even in, even in the even in the West Coast at Wilderness Awareness, when when designing the the Kamana program, the naturalist training program that I was part of designing that, and um, you know, there is just nothing like out here. Like I don't know why you know someone didn't pick up on the Newcomb's legacy and make a West yeah. Coast one because um, we still recommend people. Because there's a lot of things, even though it's east of the Mississippi, there's a lot of things in there that you can find out here. But the the way of 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 how it trains your eye is you know unparalleled. Even if you don't keep using Newcombs, I mean the, that's what I started using, and someone recommended that years ago. But I I never stopped that that brain patterning of the first thing I do I look and I'm like all right. Um, is this distinguishable, not distinguishable? Is it irregular? Is it not irregular? Does it have many petals? Does it have, what's the, the shape of, you know, what's, what's the branching pattern? And it just taught me how to question. So that every time I look at a plant, I, I, I don't even have to draw it. I don't have to take a piece of it. I can just use my observation skills, memorize that pattern, or even write down that in a journal or something. Go back and then usually find it even in another plant book that's not Newcomb's. You know, that's true. You know, so I don't know, just something I realized. <laughs> I wish, yeah. but I wish well, they'd make a West Coast one. <laughs> it doesn't. It well, the same. I mean, it's the same thing. So whether you use Gleason and Hitchcock, or you know, Gleason and Cronquist out here, or mm-hmm. Hitchcock and Cronquist out in the Northwest, it's you always look for the same things. And I, I'll say that that handout that you mentioned that I have is called it's my the botanical twelve step program. Um. <laughs> Is because once you start, there's basically the same things are looked at. Is it a monocot or is it a dicot? Is it irregular or irregular? Is, are the is it all all the petals attached or all the pet- petals separate? Then once you start getting an eye for that, it doesn't always make it easy because it's you know plants hybridize. It's it's, it's yeah. tricky, but you start once you get the skills. It's also once again 
Like treating people is the same kind of thing. So you, you start listening. They say, I have a headache. And you think, what kind of headache? And they're like, you know, a headache. And you're like, you know, without sounding patronizing, like I'm not, I'm not really sure what kind of headache you have. You know, when the front of your head hurts in the morning. And you're like, oh, that kind of headache. And what else happens? Well, I don't, you know, you know the kind of headache you go to sleep with, you don't have it, and you wake up. And you just start, there's a sense of questioning and patterns that, we can learn to invoke in order to get, you know, another set of responses that leads to another set of questions. And, I mean, it's much easier to identify plants than it is to identify people's health issues generally yes. because, you know, we're very complex biologically, whereas, you know, a plant generally can get pretty close to the species within a certain amount of time. Yes, exactly. But that's, uh, yeah, that that's great. That, that That's really helpful because, um, you know, and then, uh, like, I like, I like your 12th step. <laughs> it's like, well, the you know, the first step of, of, uh, of um, getting over be a, a botanist is admitting that you're one. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and some people might find that a little offensive. But <laughs> well, the I brand know. Brand of all people has never been my strongest suit. I, I know, and especially when you, you know, when you know you get to a certain state when you find yourself like, you know, stopping on the side of the road every time, like you see a different plant family and ripping out your <laughs> field guide. <laughs> Yeah, you just can't pass the plant without knowing what it is. <laughs> that would be true. I, I pretty one of my goals is to know as many plants as possible. I mean, I would like to know them all, but I'm still terrible at uh, lots of grasses, sedges. I'm hopeless, and uh, the flowering plants are easier. For me. Yes, yes, that's true. And 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 you know, and and also the, the books have realized that it, that it takes some time too. I mean, being that a lot of the keying is done by looking at flowers. Um, that, uh, you know, it's okay that if it takes you a season or two of, of recognizing when something flowers to positively identify. I mean, you got a long life, right? I mean, it, you know, just, just take And if you don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. So, uh, you know, Samson, do you, do you mind if I, uh, um, kind of, uh, finished up, uh, with, uh, a plug in your school for you? Sure, I'm curious how you would plug my school. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> I do want to. I do want to say to folks that uh, that that you know you can visit uh, Seven Songs uh, School Northeast School Botanical Me- Medicine at sevensong.com, and uh, you do a uh, uh, six month intensive program. And you just you, is that the one you just finished up? You you said you just finished one up last night. Yesterday. Oh, I'm, so that's that that's uh, it must be tough seeing people go after. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's t- I don't like because most people, uh, pretty much out of the seventeen students, mm-hmm. more than two thirds moved to Ithaca, so they're just you know going to leave and go back maybe to sunnier, sunnier climes at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, it's it's fun to have time to sit in a warm bath and read novels. So. There must be a lot of great herbalists in the Ithaca area by now, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, a lot of them leave, unfortunately. Oh, they leave? Oh, okay. And the tricky thing with herbalists everywhere is that it's not that easy to make a livelihood. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, I do it, I, you know, the free clinic, of course, I don't get paid. And so my livelihood is as a teacher. Um, and, what, you know, to be an herbal teacher, either you go to a, a school, you have to, just have to have strong entrepreneurial skills. It's just like a musician in that sense. You know, I mean, you could be really good at what you do, but trying to make a livelihood usually means you have to know how to cut out your own path. Mm. And so, um, but some of the students, some of the students do. A lot of them really are come to the school. I mean, six months is not a lot of time to learn medicine. It's a very, very short time. Mm-hmm. 
to learn medicine because that's what it's, you know, it's not just herbs. It's about how to treat people. And so then you know, the next step is where to go from here. So, yeah, so my program is a, there's a six-month uh, program that's three days a week plus three long field trips, two of them for one week, one of them for two and a half weeks. And then there's also a one-weekend a month program uh, from May to November with no classes in July. I also have an apprenticeship, and a lot of people, I'm laughing because a lot of people call it, but I only take three apprentices a year, and it tends to fill up. And the apprentices are basically people that work with me on a very uh, daily basis. It really has to click. I mean, there's every. it's good to click in all accounts, but, you know, they're in my house and working with me. And so next year, there's already two out of the three apprentices picked. Um, so if, uh, often people call me up about it, but it's it's good to be open to just being a student. Also, there's just a lot to learn. The apprentices have less time to study than regular students. Mm-hmm. Some people do it because the apprenticeship is free, but if you figure out the school is 3100 bucks for the year um, and you can't have a job if you're an apprentice, it, it gets, you have you know, sometimes in a way it's cheaper to be a student. <laughs> exactly. and, and let me just say this and be even clearer. Uh, please don't ever call me up to do the apprenticeship to save money. That's not why I have an apprenticeship. Right, exactly. So, um, and also, uh, remember to, uh, oh, you also, have, so if you live locally, if anyone listens is living kind of more locally, you do some weekend classes. Um, That's one weekend a month. And mm-hmm. people come from as far away as Pittsburgh, which is about seven and a half hours from here, mm-hmm. and New York City and Washington, D.C. But there might be other herb schools that are closer. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, I, the reason they probably come to this school is more first aid and botany, and you like snarky, sarcastic, critical thinking, herbal medicine. <laughs> I like that. That should be your uh, byline slogan. On the- <laughs> it is. <laughs> I change it. Sometimes it's glib and flippant. <laughs> These days I'm a little more. These days I like the word snarky better. <laughs> so, uh, folks, uh, you know, so you do travel a lot to different uh, uh, um, to different um, gatherings and herbal. Um, uh, what do you call them? conferences? Like I saw you at a couple of weeks ago. So and I'll be teaching for a week in Florida in Gainesville in mm-hmm. February. I'm teaching for a week or two in the Bay Area in April. So I do that kind of thing too. I don't really ever post it because usually I'm teaching more. You are. I want to go down. I'll go down to the Bay Area in April. Really <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm there. I'm teaching at the California School of Verbal Studies. Oh, okay. my alma mater, by the way. Oh, okay. Maybe I have to be in that program then. I can't just show up, can I? <laughs> I'm, I don't. I'm, I think I'm not sure. You go to their website. <laughs> we'll find out. I'll go to there. Um, so, Seven Song, I want to thank you so much for hanging out with us today, and uh, uh, more than anything, uh, thanks for all the wonderful work you do in the world. And uh, maybe we can have you back sometime. Thanks, John. Thanks. Have a great day. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons including Herb Mentor news, home remedy secrets, and supermarket herbalism. You'll also find the herbal medicine making kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.